Um, well, could you speak a little bit about Sam Vega? Mm -hmm. Well, it's just another word. <laughs> and it, you know, the dumb is here and now, so it's not. You're always with the Dhamma, whether you realize it or not. Just learning to recognize, to awaken. Like Buddha, the word Buddha means awaken. It's not a person, you know. So Buddha isn't, it's not, it's not a personal name or not a person of the past, but it's, a, it's the word to awaken to the present moment is like this. But then you can start thinking in terms of urgency, you know. You've got this lifetime to to awaken. But I mean, if you keep putting it off, you won't ever awaken. <laughs> so, it's a... What to say? Like in, on the Sakapuja day, you know, it's the day they celebrate the birth, the enlightenment, and death of the historical Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, and, and then, uh, you know, it's he, his whole life was very neatly arranged to being born and enlightened and dying on the same day. And but it, it's also you know, as in terms of reflection, you've got this li this lifetime between birth, we already been born. So that's here and now. This birth is like this. You're breathing, you know, your your body was born so many years ago and it's breathing and it's sensitive and it has eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and there's awareness of the body that wasn't born. So it's always, you know, in terms of between birth and death, each one, each human being has this possibility to, for enlightenment between the birth of the body and death of the body. And the, you know the idea that you are a physical body is a, is a, an illusion. You know when you investigate in terms of dharma, the body is isn't like you know anything ever like a tree or a squirrel or a bird or anything. It's another condition that that's born onto the planet. But the awareness of the body, the body can't be aware of anything. You know, it's it's a empty sankhara condition, empty phenomenon. <coughs> but you know, through ignorance, we identify with the body all the time. You know, so it's this is the basic delusion, the ego, the sakyaditi, the view that, that I am this 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 sankara, this is me. 
and then the, that creates this division that you're separate because your body's sitting there and mind's sitting here, so it seems we're separate. <clears throat> and then, you know, it'd be all the sankaras that, you know, once you're born, you accumulate, you absorb the, the views and opinions of your mother, your father, your social position, your religion. All your identities are acquired. And they're all sankaras, every single identity that you have, that you think you are and believe in and suffer from is is empty is an empty phenomenon. So it's like awakening to this and recognizing. The more you do it like in in direct meditation, it's it's being the puto, the witness to the, what you're thinking, what, you know, the, the question, uh, am I really this, this physical body? Is that all I am? Ajahn Sumato was a name given to me. I wasn't born with that name. And then, you know, the, but a newborn baby is, is conscious, universal consciousness in a, in a human form. So all the problems that we create in our lives, you know, marital problems, relationship problems, social problems, political problems, are this this uh, ignorant clinging to sankaras as our reality. <coughs> For stream intra, they say, Sila Bhutta Paramahansa, you do rites and rituals. Coming from a cultural background like Sri Lanka, Thai, Thailand, we see a lot of those things. To what extent do you, to what extent do we have to watch that? Rites and rituals. Sila Bhutta Paramahansa. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, <coughs> Buddha a... Puja and all those things we, we do a lot time-spending? Well, it's it's skillful action, you know, that if you think that enlightenment is going to happen through bowing to Buddha Rupas, that's Silapatabharamas. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we have physical forms, to, how to use them, so like pujas and uh, is, uh, conventions, that at first we might you know, they might be superstitions. We believe that the Buddha nature is inside the Buddha Rupa, or, you know, we, we can form these, you know, see the conventions as uh, create them into much more than what they are. But like Buddha Rupas, like one time there was somebody that was against Buddha Rupas. This was in England, and he said, the Buddha, at the time of the Buddha, there were no Buddha Rufus. <laughs> and which is true, you know, and he didn't teach about Buddha Rupas. There's nothing in the scriptures about Buddha Rupas, and so we aren't going to have any more Buddha Rupas. But that's an opinion, you know, they form an opinion uh, that because there weren't any Buddha Rupas at the time of the Buddha, and he didn't 
you know, he didn't bow to Buddha Rupas. Then, but it's how you use a Buddha Rupa. You know, so as an icon, it's a, it's a beautiful icon. You know, a kind of reminder of enlightenment when you see the Buddha Rupa here. You know, you can see it in terms of aesthetics, whether you think it's beautiful or not, or that, that you know, like a uh, aesthete would, you know, say, is that that's a beautiful one, or it's not good enough, or you know, form opinions. But, but the form itself, even Buddha Rupas that are not very beautiful, is a form of human <coughs> form in the state of awareness. You know, so, you know, the eyes are open, there's calm, there's, you know, so it's a, it's a icon that the West has never developed, like Western culture. And you, and you look at Western icons, there are, my sister's a devout Roman Catholic and paints icons and they're all, you know, kind of passions and, and, uh, giving emotions. There's none in the state of calm or, or no, there's no Buddha type icon in, in that kind of Byzantine art form. And so in, in Europe when you go, I remember being in Paris years ago and you're going down the Champs-Élysées and the Eiffel Tower and you see all these these passionate forms of kings and queens and queens, you know, very haughty and arrogant-looking women and powerful men with swords and and uh, they're all kind of beautifully made statues. And then you go to the Gimei Museum, which has a Oriental collection in Paris, and they have a beautiful collection of Cambodian uh, Khmer. Buddha Rupas, you know, and they have them lit and such a relief to go in and just see a, a form, a human form in the state of calm and awareness. Like Buddha Rupas aren't, you know, shutting their eyes, plugging up their ears or refusing to to acknowledge existence, but they're, they're not moved, they're not deluded by existence, by what arises in existence. So when you contemplate Buddha Rupas, you know, when you live with them, they always remind us, because we do forget, we get carried away with our habits. Uh, when somebody says something that upsets us and you can get totally lost in, in, in being angry or offended by that, and then you look at a Buddha Rupa, that's a reminder, you know, of mindfulness. So it's how you want to use conventions. At first, maybe pujas are part of tradition, cultural tradition, and we do it because it's what we're supposed to do. But as we awaken and begin to become aware, they they become much more than just cultural conventions and things that you you know that you're supposed to do in your in a Buddhist cultural society. Like chanting yesterday, that Samaya Tam, you know, all the 
the Brahmas, the Devas, the, the only beings that, that are that listed in this in the realm of Sankaras were invited to join on this event on my birthday, <laughs> and you can you can you know for a rationalist person who you know thinks well it's just rubbish you know just ceremony but that's how you want to see it you know how you want to you, you can just see it as rubbish or you can see it as as a blessing you know because it it's uh, using words to that are that are bringing positive images and blessings and ideas of goodness and wholesomeness into our mind at this time nothing there where the thing is rubbish is kind of negative you know it's, it sounds very opinionated but you can be very proud that you're you aren't superstitious and believe in all those devas and brahmas and and we we're beyond that that's arrogance isn't it that's intellectual arrogance <coughs> So like, and I remember when I was a layman living in Bangkok, I went to a monastery where they had uh, Wat Benjamin Vorpit, which is called Marble Temple. It was a kind of tourist temple, beautiful temple in the marble, and it had in the cloister uh, Buddha Rupas uh, in, in this huge cloister, and all of the same mark you know there wasn't one distinguishing feature that was different in all these hundred buddha rupas and then from my my aesthetic viewpoint you know i went mean, they're not very interesting because they're all the same you know you you've seen one you've seen them all you know you kind of dismiss it and that was the mind of a layman american layman who hadn't meditated I went back later visiting Mount Benjamin Borfit and I felt this a sense of joy of being surrounded by these peaceful images. You know, there's a shift from the American tourist <laughs> thinking that you you know, you want to see you want to examine differences, one rupa and, and it, it is it you know, is it as good as the next one, and is it older, or is it does it have a long history, or is it modern, and and you, you want to know all about it. Where was it cast? Is it Burmese? Is it Indian, Sri Lankan? Uh, you you want to fill your mind with all kinds of concepts uh, about the Buddha Rupas, but notice that when you when you like if you do Bhutanasati, you know, in front of a Buddha Rupa, you don't you aren't thinking about it. You aren't, you know, deciding whether you like it or don't like it, or it's too big or too small, or whether it's from Thailand or Sri Lanka. But you stop thinking. And it's a peaceful image, you know. That's why you know, people want them now for their it's in England to put in their gardens rather than gnomes. <laughs> 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 
gnomes give a different feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to hear something about um, uh, loving-kindness meditation. Uh, like uh, how you cultivate, uh, so is it like over and over reciting and it gets into your heart quality and kind of spread it like I heard that is the ultimate of the loving kindness, like you get the samadhi out of the loving kindness meditation. So I would like to hear from you like um, more about that. Well, like metta is yeah. is dhamma, you know. It's it's here and now, and it is doesn't judge. Like in, when we do the formal kind of ahamsakito homi nituko homi and we're homi and so forth. That is that's a formula. You start with yourself. So. <clears throat> You know, and that's for everything, not just your physical, what you think you are as a person or a physical being, but a metaphor for your anger, for your uh, fears, for your jealousies. And that means, uh, you know, they are what they are, they're conditions. Like if, you, if we just have metta, I found it in the beginning, you know, when I first started practicing metta, hangsikita homi, may I be well, I found that, you know, I found it kind of uncomfortable because wishing yourself well, I found that difficult. <laughs> Where a billion Chinese I could easily do, <laughs> you know, or animals or <clears throat> people in Africa or <laughs> anywhere. But towards oneself is is learning to to not to your habit tendencies, your your emotional attitudes towards yourself, your your fears and and uh, anger, resentment, jealousy, all these emotions. To have metaphor for them means to accept them. They are what they are in the present. So, you know, in, 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 with so much metta practice, people want, it's mostly developing positive thinking, thinking positively about yourself and about everyone else. And that's, that's skillful. That's not to be despised. But it tends to remain in the, in the head. Yeah. And it and it has a you know it does makes you feel good at the end of it. But ultimately, metta is the nature of dhamma. It's, it's embracing everything, you know. So you have metta for devas and for maras, <laughs> and you don't spread more metta to the devas and <coughs> only a little bit to the maras. You know, it's not about preferring one group over another. So in terms of language, that that's quite meaningful it, that, it, that we do. We aren't just, uh, you know, spreading metta to our pets and our friends and our mother and father and teachers and 
and all the good people, but towards everything, because it, 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 metta really embraces totality. It's not about preferring one condition over another one. So it's like unconditioned love. In Christianity, it's like unconditioned love. And one time a, a woman came to me upset because, this was in England, because uh, she was attending a metta meditation course, 10 day course, and, and uh, she had a problem with her mother. And every time the monk said, now spread metta to your mother, this woman felt angry. You know, so she came to me, you know, I wasn't teaching this retreat. She came to me very upset and said she's a really terrible, must be a terrible person because she, she can't spread loving kindness to her own mother. Oh, when, they, when the monk says, now spread metta to your mother, I just feel angry and hatred and and so I must be a bad person, you know. So she was uh, finding it, you know, a real hassle, you know, a really intimidating experience. So I said, well, have metta for your anger. This is where you start. You hung Sakito homi before you can have metta for your mother. You start with hung Sakito, may I be well. And, and the kind of that signifies accepting the way you are, whatever you you are in the present moment. If you're angry with your mother, metta means accepting that, allowing it to be. It's a sankara, rising, ceasing. And if you do this, then eventually you reach it where you do have metta for your mother. But you can't, you know, if you're angry with your mother and you try to say I may my mother be well and happy you know you can feel you know you can, you can do that but you don't it's not real meta it's more than just putting positive words on your uh, covering up your anger and resentment so you know don't don't be afraid of what you're feeling you know if you you feel anger or hatred or jealousy or fear. There's so many people and you know that come to us that are afraid of their anger. They're afraid of the negative, the dark side. And, you know, and, and in terms of my own experience, I was used to be afraid of, I thought there might be something evil lurking in me I didn't, you know, I didn't want to know about. This fear that evil, there's some kind of evil force. And um, because in, in my background, this Christian background, you get this sense of you're born sinful. And so it, you're born in sin. So you, you kind of have this sense of there's kind of latent evil forces residing inside you. But that's not true at all. That's a prevarication, it's a creation of the mind. Because there's absolutely nothing to fear. Because you're, you're, what you really are is the loving kindness. It's Dhamma. Perfection. 
and then the, what you see, what you think you are, is all imperfect. Even with, even if you think you are really good person, that's still a thought. You know, it's a, you, you know, eventually you're getting beyond thinking. You relinquish thinking to just being aware. So, like in stream uh, entry, you know, the first three fetters are all about the ego, the the illusion of yourself as a physical being, physical body, as a personality. You know what you see yourself as a, a certain kind of person, you see yourself as a female or a male or whatever, you know, all these are, are conditions we create uh, through the thinking process. And, uh, and by reflecting on that, by observing that, that which is observing the sankara isn't the sankara. That's why mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Up in the Dhammapada, Apamado Amatapadang. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Apamado mindfulness, not being heedless. Heedlessness is the way to the Amatapadang, deathless, to Dhamma. Pamado Machanopadang, heedlessness, not being mindful, is the, is the way to death. Upamado Machanopadang, the death path. Upamado Namiyanti, mindfulness is, is, is never dying, where Ye Pamadaya Tamata, heedlessness is dying all the time. You know, thinking, changing, it's caught in, in, in Kasinkaras that are changing all the time, so it's like, a pamadaya, pamadaya, heedlessness is like dying all, all the time. That's why we call it suffering, dukkha. Because in so many ways we're dying all the time. But we aren't aware of it because we're always seeking rebirth and the next thing. And so in meditation, you you know, you become aware of, like I, Lumpa Chai used to encourage me to to observe the ending of things because like the arising of things was was easy to contemplate but the ending of things the ending of a thought the ending of the absence of an emotion that comes and then bearing with it and when it ends there's awareness takes you to awareness seeing that the death of sankaras or the ending of sankaras takes you to peace. Amatapada. So it's, it, you know, like attaining the path, you know, they talk about attaining stream entry. And this is a this misleading. It's not an attainment. You know, it's about letting go of these three fetters: the 
Sakyaditya, the ego, the Siddhapada Bharamasa, attachment to convention, and Mitikicca, which is doubt, which is always the result of attachment to thinking. You think a lot, you doubt a lot. You know, you try to think about yourself as a person, you end up with all kinds of doubts about yourself. And, and then, you, you know, you analyze, like, Buddha never, you know, he, he never asked the question, why? Why do I suffer? You know, and the ego's interested, why do I suffer? What about, what about is it past life experience? Did I do something in a past life to be reborn, to suffer in this life? Or is it because of, you know, things of the past, childhood experiences, abuses of the past, or am I just a neurotic mental case? <laughs> why do I admit you know, in in meditation, you're never asking why. You don't need to know why you suffer. Suffering is like this. It's not as it's, it's awareness of suffering rather than when you ask why do why do you suffer? Why do I suffer? Then you're coming from the ego. You know, I am this person that suffers. And why do I suffer? And you get caught up into the endless proliferations, possibilities, you know, of, and, and, and of analyzing yourself, trying to figure out what's wrong with you, you end up <coughs> never being sure. You end up with witchy kita doubt. So in terms of, you know, and doubt is, is, is then used <coughs> As, because doubt is, we stop thinking when you're doubting. <coughs> what is the meaning of life? And you want an answer to that, but even if you ask me what's the meaning of life, there's the thinking process stops. So like in, in Zen Buddhism, they use like the koan right, to stop the thinking mind. You know, using a technique like any question, even a worldly question, where are my car keys? You know, you, you stop thinking at that moment. And you, you, you know, you might know where your car keys are. <laughs> but just the question creates this, this absence of thought. And that's what the point of the koan is. If you stop thinking, then you become aware of non-thinking. <coughs> Before you start thinking, my car keys, oh, I left them in the car, or they're in my purse, or whatever. So it's, you, like, I use the, the encouragement to deliberately think, and observe the spaces between thoughts. So you, and through this kind of investigation, you know, when, when there's not a thought, you don't, you're not a person anymore. There's awareness, you're conscious, but you're, there's no sense of being a, a person, uh, good, bad, right, or wrong. It's it's empty, but aware, and that's you know like upamado mindfulness. Awareness. This is just aware of an object. Aware when you cross the street or when you're driving a car. 
but awareness is here and now. So like intentional thinking, you, you're just like listening, you're listening to yourself thinking, I, then there's nothing there. Being I am Ajahn Sumato, you know, on a conventional basis, that, that's all right. But in terms of Dhamma, there's no Ajahn Sumato. These are, these are Sankars changing. <laughs> you know, we, on a conventional level, we, we use Ajahn Sumato. I've been given a new name by the king. <laughs> I haven't gotten used to that one yet. I don't think I'll use it. <laughs> and my Christian name, I have a Christian name, Robert. <laughs> so names are, you know, they're, they're Sankaras. Bodies are Sankaras. But that is aware, awareness of the body is not a sankara. So the more you, you instruct yourself in this way, you keep reflect, it's like reflecting. We might as well, we forget, we, we're so conditioned by conventions, by education, by culture, by religion. We just, you know, we, it, it, it's just so strong. That it does take uh, determination to to re- that these reminders, like chanting, can be a reminder. Like we <clears throat> chanting about Dhamma, Santitiko, Akaliko, Ehipasko, Opanaiko, Bhajatangwe, Tidako, Anui. You know, I, we in Thailand, you know, we, we chanted that every morning and evening. And it's in Pali, and then they, then they develop this, this translation where they give a Santidiko, and then they give a Thai translation for it, because Lumpur Chara wanted people to know what they're chanting, you know, so it's, it's not just Santidiko or Thaliko, like a, you know, you don't know what it means when you're chanting it, because you're supposed to, that's a convention. But those, that, that, that kind of reflection on Dhamma, then you consider it and said, Pidiko Dhamma, apparent here and now. And then, then I ask myself, what's apparent here and now? You know, and then there's, there's vision, there's hearing, there's, there's, but this is all different, you know, and it changes. But what is apparent here and now is, conscious, is awareness, consciousness. So suddenly you have an insight into consciousness is here and now, and it's not. And and, and if I say it's my consciousness, that's I'm creating words. I'm possessing it with my with a possessive pronoun. My it's mine. Well, it's not. Those are words that that come and go and change. But if you trust your awareness, it's just this pure awareness. It's still it's silent. So Dhamma is here and now, it's not, it's apparent, it's not some mystical force and something high, you know, that that uh, you have to be especially 
developed human being to, to understand or realize is you are that. You're a parent here and now. And the delusion, the, the, the uh, illusion of attaining enlightenment is not an attainment, it's a relinquishing. It's all about letting go. Breaking, not letting go through, through denial or dismissal, but through understanding of the suffering you create through attachment. Yesterday you talked about ultimate dharma. Um, Would you kindly uh, elaborate on the ultimate dharma? Yesterday you talked about ultimate reality, ultimate dharma. Could you kindly reflect on that? We could just do ultimate, ultimate reality. <coughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that's the name, that's like Dhamma. Ultimate reality you can't conceive of. You know, so you have, you know, you translate the, the Pali word Dhamma into English as ultimate reality. That's the best you can do, but what does that mean? Where is it? What is ultimate reality? You know, and it, uh, what is Dhamma? And and then then you reflect. You don't try to you can't, since you can't define ultimate reality. You know you can create the you can translate dhamma into English as ultimate reality. But you still don't know what it is, <laughs> and it just sounds very high. Ultimate means you know at the top, and uh, so it. It can be misleading because Dhamma is here and now, apparent here and now. It's not something that that is way beyond you, and it's awakening to here and now, just being trusting yourself to be aware, not of any object, but just trusting in awareness. So it's you can't think about this; you just do it. It's like listening. Like when you're listening, you know you're you're not listening for to to music or to somebody else. You're not kind of see focusing your hearing on an object, but you're just open in a state of open attention. I call it intuitive awareness. It's, you're not you're not concentrating on sounds like birds and. And uh, or music or someone speaking or traffic noise. But there's just this hearing, noticing. The hearing is like this, and you begin to kind of notice the silence of hearing, of just listening, where sounds arise and cease, noises arise and cease. And so you know to develop it like in uh, first I you know I when I first had insight into this I, I it was through calming the mind and through through you know living in a very controlled environment where there was stillness and nobody was talking there was no sound I became aware of silence sound of silence and then I 
uh, and then I'd feel, you know, then I I would kind of resent anybody that came in the room and slammed the door or made any noise. <laughs> but then I figured out that silence is 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 all the time. You know, it's 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 not something that comes and goes. The silence you get through concentrating on an object like tranquility comes and goes. But if you're just open, in, intuitively open, apperception you can call it, then then you notice the, the silence and the sound that arises and ceases in silence. And so then you cultivate that in terms of a daily life. Like, um, just uh, this, you begin to trust the silence that's always present here and now, even in, when the, in noisy situations. So in in Hampstead, when we lived in London, <coughs> I helped tell this story about English Sangha Trust, the, the group that invited me to England. They're in terrible conflict, having terrible kind of meetings where they were insulting each other, abusing each other, <laughs> and you know, the two factions fighting with each other. And I was sitting there, you know, wishing I was back in Thailand. <laughs> and then one day I had to, you know, I was walking down Haverstock Hill, kind of a busy street that the Hampstead Vihara was on, and, and uh, the sound of silence kind of suddenly remembered it, I kind of forgotten it. And uh, so I started cultivating this silence. And in these acrimonious meetings, you know, I began to, where, you know, before I was just being pulled between one faction and another, you know, they both had their reasonable points to make. And I was, you know, I was just new to the situation. And everybody was expecting me to make a decision. And I, and I just felt this aversion, uh, you know, emotional aversion of what was happening. Where in the silence I could be aware of my personal reaction of aversion or, you know, what people were saying. And still, you know, it gave me, gave perspective on what was actually happening, both externally, you know, through the, and both internally as far as my emotional habit reactions would be. But what was really stable was the silence. So this this is Dhamma. This is you're not creating silence. It's not a it's something you can't create. But it's here and now, just right now, this stillness and that all this is operating in and you open to it. And so that is what I call intuitive awareness or apperception. Like perception, you perceive things through the senses, but apperception is you know, this embracing non critical beingness that, that, that we begin to trust. You know, so it's 
Apamado Amatabadanga, mindfulness, the path to the deathless. Mayango Adakata Satu Karanga Tamase. Sahi.